0: Amen. We began this series on sex with a look at where we are today, the situation we find ourselves in. Today, we live in a culture that is saturated with sex, as highly saturated as at any time in the past. In the midst of our sexualized culture, however, Mainline Christianity has been virtually silent on the subject of sex. We never talk about it in church. As a result, we not only lose relevance, especially for those who are seeking faith in the 21st century, but we also end up defaulting to our received and often unexamined Christian views on sex and sexual ethics. I argued in that first sermon that these ethics have their roots in the writings of Augustine of Hippo and his dualist worldview, which denigrate any and all bodily pleasures as bad. This was modified in the Reformation to affirm that while bodily pleasures are bad, the only potentially acceptable place for them is within the marriage covenant. This viewpoint on sex is both unhelpful today and actually causes harm in a number of cases. We need something more. Then, two weeks ago, I looked at what the Bible has to say about sex by focusing on one particularly enlightening section of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In that sermon, I argued that Paul's view on sex and sexuality is deeply rooted in first century notions of the body and desire, as well as in Jewish concerns with purity and pollution. The first-century conception of the body is not one we share, for a whole host of reasons. It makes no sense for us to claim that the views of the first century on sex and the body should be the only acceptable Christian viewpoint. We don't accept first-century notions on disease and purity, and nor should we elevate their views on sex and sexuality as the only Christian stance. I further argue that the contemporary conservative view on sex is not one that's true to Paul's conception either. Conservatives read the text from their social location, as we all do, and that social location is rooted in the particular history of American Protestant Christianity and its repressive views on sex and the body. So where does that leave us as Christians today? We see the need for a relevant Christian sexual ethic. We acknowledge that much of what the Bible has to say about sex is constructed by a 2,000-year-old perspective that we don't share. So now what? After church two weeks ago, one of you perceptively asked, John, are we supposed to throw the Bible out altogether? Is the liberal Christian sexual ethic just doing whatever you want? I assured this person that I did not feel this way, and that today I would offer my own perspective. Also, we are having coffee with the minister after service, so we can discuss it more in depth as a congregation. (laughs) Yes, we are congregationalists. We love discussion. And we want you each to think for yourself. I hope during the sermon I'll give you something worthwhile to think about. One thing I've mentioned again and again in the past is that all Christians approach the Bible and the Christian tradition with a particular lens. We are postmodernists. We don't believe that we can have true objectivity. Our perceptions of the world are always influenced by our own experiences, our culture, our language, and our philosophical and religious outlook. This is certainly true with how we read the Bible and the interpretations we derive from it. The key is to honestly interrogate what our lens actually is, because again, we all have one, and why we have it. As I've said in the past, I have been deeply influenced by liberation theology, which states that we need to look at lived human experience, especially the experience of those on the margins, and then use that experience to read the text and the tradition. Then we bring the insights of, that, of, the, of the tradition and the text back to our lived experience. It's an interpretive circle that moves, we hope, towards greater liberation and compassion for us and society. I'd like to use that same approach here as we consider Christian sexual ethics. We start with our lived human sexual experiences and then bring them to the biblical text in our tradition in the hopes of refining what we believe and constructing a liberating Christian ethic, which is the essence of Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God. So where are we? What would you say about the lived nature of sex and sexuality today, how it actually is? If there's one thing I would say about sexuality in the 21st century, I would say that it is intensely complex. And this complexity demands more than simplistic rules. This, of course, is not what we're taught in society. We are taught that there's a pattern to our sex lives. We see this through movies and televisions and the ways in which we construct our rituals. The pattern is, you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, and then you ride off into the sunset in a car trailing cans and streamers with the words, just married, in the rear window. We don't have sexual experiences before then, and if we do, they're generally bad, and the sexual experiences after marriage are blissful and always enriching. (laughs) That's how it works, right? (laughs) On my plane ride home from Germany this week, I watched the coming-of-age film, Love, Simon. The one twist in the plot was that the main character was a gay character, But other than that, it ran like your typical romantic storyline. Simon is struggling to find a mate, though he's not sexually active, of course. His best friends are all in the same situation. It's about an hour and a half of teenage angst until finally all of them find their ideal partner. Bliss ensues. We've arrived at the end of the story. Fade to black. This story doesn't even begin to wrestle with the complexities of intimacy and relationships. We can have deep and meaningful connections with someone, even if that interaction is limited, even if you've only met only once. Has that ever happened to you? Did you have a strong connection with someone outside the context of a relationship? Did it seem bad or wrong? Or was it generally great? If it was so wonderful and fulfilling, if only for a short time, what do we make of that ethically? Relationships involve emotional connection. Intellectual connection, shared interests and backgrounds, in addition to sexual intimacy. All of these things matter. Some amazing intimate relationships involve very little sex. And a sex partner and sex with a partner evolves over time. The sex you have at the beginning of a relationship is not the same as the sex you have later in your relationship. There is a reason why we have the phrase the seven year itch. It is said that after roughly seven years of even a great relationship, there is an itch, a desire for something else, something more. We are human. Just because we're in a relationship, even a good one, doesn't mean that you won't feel sexual attraction for someone else. How do we talk about that? What do we say? I've known couples that have an open relationship. That is, they have sex outside the relationship and it works quite well. In the gay community especially, it's not uncommon. I've also known plenty of open relationships that don't work at all. Is an open relationship inherently wrong? If so, why? I've known long-standing polyamorous relationships, where the relationship involves more than just two people. There's There's a lot that can be said about these different relationships, but one thing is certain, it's complex. Sex and sexuality does not fit neatly into the narrative we have for it, and how can we have an ethic that honors that? There are power dynamics that add, that add to the complexity of a relationship. One person makes significantly more money than the other person. One person is older. One person has a high-profile position. One person comes from a prominent family. All of these things affect attraction and intimacy. What is the ethic around these power dynamics? Is a, is a significant age difference inherently bad? We can certainly judge that in society, and we do. How do we wrap our heads around the role of money? There are plenty of so-called sugar daddies in Houston. Is that unethical? If so, when? And why? Gender plays an enormous role as well. We live in a culture that is far too often misogynist, that treats, that treats women like objects. This was fully on display this past Thursday during the testimonies of Christine Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. Ford had to relate the harrowing experience of her attempted rape. Whoever tried to rape her, whether it was Brett Kavanaugh or someone else, saw her as nothing more than an object to be used, a fun distraction amidst a culture of toxic masculinity where boys will be boys. Christianity has played a major role in gender dynamics as well. The Christian tradition has bequeathed us a culture where we are deeply uncomfortable with female sexual desire. Going back to the cult of the Virgin Mary, women are told that they're not supposed to have desire themselves. They are meant to be objects of desire. Who of you women have not felt this? Women are said to be emotional, not sexual, while men are just driven by their testosterone. This, of course, is nonsense. Of course women have sexual desire. But what if women talked about sex the same way that men do? Imagine the reactions you'd get. Gender roles play into our ethics around sex in profound ways. Likewise, race and culture play a role in sex. The two most obvious examples in our society are the black man and the East Asian woman. The black man is supposed to be well-endowed, aggressive, a rapist. The East Asian woman is supposed to be silent, delicate, a flower to be plucked. Hispanic culture has its own sense of masculinity and femininity, which play a big role in sex and sexuality. These racial and cultural factors shape what we see as right and wrong ways to behave in sexual situations. Sex changes as we age as well. Our physical bodies change over time, our hormones change. The way we have sex changes. The way sex affects us emotionally changes with age and experience. I'm sure most of you can attest to that. The sexual ethics and issues of a teenager what is right and wrong for a teenager, are far different than those for a recently widowed 63-year-old. Trauma has a major impact on sex and sexuality. If you've experienced trauma from sex, anything from a highly embarrassing situation, to physical assault or rape, that impacts your intimacy and the way that you see sex. I've known people who've endured traumatic sexual experiences who are unable to feel aroused in intimate situations. The trauma is too overwhelming. What do you do if that's your partner? Do you leave them because the sex is not satisfying? The LGBT community in particular has had to deal with the societal trauma of homophobia. Alan Downs' best-selling book, *The Velvet Rage*, outlines this in in detail. LGBT folks feel a disproportionate amount of shame and guilt over sex and their bodies. It's quite common for gay men, when they come out of the closet, to be unable to form healthy, intimate relationships as a result because of this deep seated self loathing that they have. This type of emotional trauma has a huge impact on sex and sexuality. On top of all this complexity is the nature of physical attraction. Our society gives us very clear images of what we should be attracted to. Just open up any magazine and look at the models. What if that's not your type? What if you are not that type? What if you're attracted to particular races or body types? I'm only into Asians or short people or white people or muscular people. What are the ethics of that? Is that bad or wrong? This is a huge debate within the LGBT community. Also, people are aroused by all types of different things. Role play, bondage, pain, bodily fluids. The range of things that arouse us is astounding. What excites one person doesn't excite someone else. To someone, a dad bod might be the hottest thing out there. (laughs) Others, like people who are skinny, if not scrawny, height, unusual bodily features, you name it, human attraction is incredibly complex. Should we judge that? Should we judge someone's type or fetish? Why? Or why not? Sex and sexuality can encompass a range of different things. Sexual intimacy does not have to include intercourse. Plenty of people have fulfilling sexual lives without intercourse. They prefer sensual massage, cuddling, or something else. You can see how all this complexity has major implications for how we judge what is right and wrong in a sexual context. Is what is right and wrong for a teenager the same same thing as what is right or wrong for a single person in her 40s? What drives our ethic of sex? As Christians, what should drive our ethic of sex? How does our belief in God, our faith in the Bible, our looking to Jesus inform how we think about issues of sex and sexual ethics? Where do the boundaries lie and why? We all have sexual ethics. We all have things that we judge in our minds to be right and wrong. Can our faith help us refine those things and give us more insight? Can our faith reshape our thinking on this and liberate us from guilt and shame that is inappropriate? while affirming the feelings of guilt that we should have. You can see why I find the traditional Christian approach to sex as being so unsatisfying. To boil everything everything sexual down to, in marriage is good, out of marriage is bad, does not even begin to speak to our situation. Marriage becomes an idol, a way to escape guilt and shame, at least temporarily, rather than a covenant that asks God to bless and be present in a relationship. I don't see how Paul's conception of Jewish purity or vague assumptions on what constitutes porneia or sexual immorality as helping either. Don't commit porneia, sexual immorality, says Paul. Okay, but what does that mean for today? What one person says is sexually immoral might not be the same thing as what someone else says. How do we come to some sort of agreement? If we want to address the dynamics of sexual ethics today, we need to look elsewhere in the tradition than the passages that have been so often used because, frankly, they are unhelpful. But where? Where do we look? This is why I love so much our text for this morning. It is Paul's own mature distillation of what matters most when determining what is right or wrong in any context. Paul writes, unequivocally, that love is the fulfilling of the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love. Agape in Greek. Compassion. Concern. It's a simple enough perspective, but it has huge ramifications for reframing sexual ethics today. Focusing on love, agape, concern for the other, moves us away from an obsessive focus on the sex act itself and away from making an idol of marriage. It has the potential to create new boundaries that do away with much of the guilt and shame we might feel over sex, while also maintaining a clear sense of right and wrong in a sexual sphere. If agape, love, is the primary criterion for sexual ethics, then that rules out any sex that is coercive or harmful to the other person. All sex that is not consensual is wrong, period. Sex that abuses power relationships, like sex between a minor and adult, or between a boss and his or her employee, is also wrong, similarly. Likewise, if you're going behind the back of your spouse or partner to have sex with someone else, if you are being dishonest and cheating in your relationship, that's not showing love for your partner or spouse. If agape love is the primary criterion for sexual relations, then mutuality and honesty become of prime importance. You can approach someone in a bar or online in a compassionate way. And similarly, be honest if you're not interested. All of that can be expressions of your concern for the other. Focus on love, agape, can also affirm non-traditional approaches to sex. People can engage in sexual fetishes and have open relationships or polyamorous relationships in ways that do show concern and love. Sex can be a wonderful expression of intimacy and enjoyment outside the context of a relationship. Where honesty, respect, communication prevail, agape can as well. This is not to say, of course, that every consensual sexual relationship is an expression of agape. People can have self-destructive sexual behaviors, where sex becomes the be all and end all of life, to the exclusion of other things that matter. Those behaviors generally grow out of depression, or some some deeper unmet need. The response to that should not be slut-shaming, as so often happens in high schools and other settings, but again, agape, encouraging someone to love themselves and showing them that they're worthy of that love. What is leading someone to act in self-destructive ways? How can you care for them and help them through their difficult time? How can you not obsessively focus on the sex act itself and see the deeper underlying dynamic at play? How can you encourage people to be safe and wise in their sexual behavior? During the height of the AIDS crisis, when people knew how the disease was transmitted, people still became infected with the virus from people outside and sometimes even within the gay community, this was met with judgment and even hatred. What the appropriate Christian response would have been was, what led someone to take a risk that that he knew might jeopardize his life? Think of the demonic homophobia of that time and the tremendous effect it had on people. How can we create an environment of love, not judgment, to care for those in need, and to work to prevent future harm? Agape, love. That, according to Paul, is the fulfillment of the law. I realize that for many of you, this sexual ethic might come across as radical. We're so used to relying on society's unspoken ethics when we judge sex and sexuality. But I hope that you can see the drawbacks of that approach. It's lack of honesty, it's lack of engagement of where people are, it's role in creating a culture of shame and guilt around sex. I must confess that my own views on sex and sexuality have changed dramatically over time with the people I've met and the experiences I've had. No simplistic set of rules could possibly answer the complexity of sex in ways that reflect the spirit of God and how God moves in our lives. And yet, can we here create a Christian sexual ethic in the 21st century that does speak to our lives and lifts up Christian values amidst a broader culture? This agape ethic is by no means the only one that we could adopt, and there are many more things that can be said about it. That is why I welcome your engagement after church during coffee hour. I'll be there to hear your feedback and give you a chance to dialogue with others in a conversation. If God is still speaking, we have to let her speak through all of us. Hopefully, by listening to the Spirit, we can become more loving, more understanding, more compassionate people. We can be liberated from shame and guilt and from silence. I do believe that 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 is what God wants for us all.